opinion matters? God's or man's? Now, our passage this morning, and we're going to read that now, is from Genesis chapter 2 and into chapter 3. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. Mango trees everywhere! (laughs) In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely, or you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made or fashioned a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman or Eve because she was taken from man, Adam. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, Jesus quotes the same words in Matthew 19.5 and Paul in Philippians 5.33. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The serpent was the shrewdest, craftiest, cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. She added to God's word there, by the way. If you do, you will die. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful 
and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was standing there with his finger in his mouth who was with her and he ate it too. Well, our passage, our passage this morning speaks of God's design, his original design for sexual intimacy which stands diabolically opposed to what appears to be what appears to be, because I think there's a lot of noise around this whole subject, appears to be what society is proposing in regard to same-sex marriage. Now you may recall if you were here and truly I drove home two weeks ago and I said to Robin, I wish the church was packed this morning because the word that Andy brought was fantastic. It was a great word. And, and if you were here, then you'll recall that um, how Andy wants to look at over this month some of those big issues that require from you and I a very clear biblical response. Can't stand on the sidelines, church. It requires a good biblical response from us. And I made some notes from... from uh, that sermon in the front of my Bible and he said things like this, the challenge for Christians is how we process, how we make sense of and how we respond to what is happening in our world and in our society and in our culture. This great challenge that lies before us. You know, Paul um, uh, Encourage the church to wake from its slumber. And I think in a number of issues, Christians, and that's you and I, need to wake up to things that are happening in our society and in our culture and make a stand. Now, Andy was speaking from Philippians 1 and verses 9 to 11 and he used the amplified version. And he said what is needed by Christians is to learn to discern. Now this came out of that passage, okay? When, when you have a moment, I was going to, I was going to uh, put it up on the screen, but I thought if I, if I do that, I'm just going to get so hooked into that, I'm going to run out of time. So um, out of that passage... We as Christians need to learn, it's a taught thing, that was Paul was saying, we need to learn to discern what is best, how. How do you discern, brothers and sisters, what is best? What is God's best? Well, it comes through our knowledge of him. And how do we grow in our knowledge of him? <clears throat> it's through his word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through his word. That's spring. <clears throat> through his word. And through our intimate and close relationship with him. So that we might discern, learn to discern what is best and through our knowledge of God and depth 
of insight. Paul is, is calling Christians to another level of insight. He's calling for a depth of insight. He's saying, Christian, no longer just look at the surface up what is there. Begin to look deeper into the things of God. And I think that's applicable, particularly when we come to uh, think about the great issues that are confronting the church, moral issues that are confronting the church. You and I need to look deeper. And he went on to say um, that this depth of insight that we could readily tell, and this is what the word is saying, not particularly Andy at this point, that we could readily tell between godly and worldly morality. And it's God's word. It's God's word that is to frame our lifestyle, the way in which we live. It, it, it should frame the choices that we make. It should frame the decisions we make, both individually and collectively. Is it any wonder, church, that the enemy's, one of the enemy's greatest strategy is to knock out of Christians' hands the sword of the Spirit? And at this point, you should be going, oh, wow, how true that is. And let me ask you, Is your sword raised? Or has it been knocked out of your hand? Because in spiritual warfare, if we have lost the only weapon against the enemy, we've got plenty of armour, but the weapon that takes us on the, def- the offence, then brothers and sisters, we're losing the battle. Individually, and collectively. So during his message, Andy said something like, we are not social commentators. Rather, we are the bearers of God's truth. We are not social commentators, brothers and sisters, but bearers of God's truth. We carry this word of God written on the walls of our hearts and minds. And so that little phrase, just boom, in my mind, just went off like a light. That little phrase started me thinking about my approach and the title to my message, whose opinion really matters. God's or man's? Genesis 3 and verse 1. It says this, The serpent was the shrewdest, the cunningest, the connivering (laughs) of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees? Already we see him twisting the word of God. God didn't say that at all. He said you can eat from 
all of the trees. They're all good to eat. You can eat from all of the trees except that one particular tree. And you may wonder why I have chosen to begin my message revisiting some of what Andy said and at the same time looking at Eve's encounter with Satan. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. First, I want to say this. Remember in my introduction, I said there I could have had a number of titles for my sermon, Spiritual Warfare in God's Garden. Well, I want to say this to you. One of the reasons why I'm looking at this passage in the whole context of um, sexuality, God's original intention, is because, brothers and sisters, you know this, but let me please remind you, we are at war. We are at war. How can we recognize the strategies of our enemy? Well, just look at the world stage. Wars, injustice, violence, sexual exploitation, sexual immorality and every kind of evil committed on the innocent. It's a big list. I mean, if I sat there and just kept writing the list, it's a huge list. You see his thumbprint all over the world. Our enemy is hateful, he's malicious, he's spiteful and evil through and through. He's the deceiver. However, he's not always so in your face, is he? And in Corinthians 2, 11 and 3, uh, 3 it says, Paul's writing and he says, and he's, he's talking about... Um, False apostles, those who come with a, a word supposedly from God, right? Supposedly from God. And he says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Well, that verse and Verse 14, that in that same chapter, that talks about how Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Oh, can't you see him in the garden as the angel of light, you know? Just a spoonful of sugar helps the poison go down. No, they're not the words. But in terms of spiritual warfare and dis in particularly in deception, they are the words. He makes it sound good, even to Jesus in his temptation. This angel of light, this, this one who comes as a caring, um, benevolent spirit, but really is malevolent and hateful, comes to tempt Christ, to turn the rock into bread. Um, do all these certain things because didn't God say that he will protect you? You know, didn't God say that he would cause his angels to watch over you? The same thing. So he masquerades as an angel of light. He takes God's word and with his smooth lying tongue 
twisted in such a way as to make what he's suggesting or presenting sound as if it's God's very word, his very will. When all along, what is his objective? Look at that verse. What is his objective? His objective is to lead you and I away from a pure devotion to Christ. That's his objective. Or he doesn't want you and I to be so in love with Christ and his word that we would actually live for Christ and fulfill God's word in our lives. That our lifestyle, the way we live, would bring honor and glory and praise to God. He wants you and I to be, he wants to lead you and away, you and I from a pure devotion to Christ. What does it mean to be devoted to something? It means you set that something aside as being so valuable and so important. You become devoted to it. And God expects nothing less of me and of you. It cost him everything to save me. Everything to save you. And he looks for a heart that's devoted to him, that loves him, that reaches out to him, that walks with him. And longs to know him and to fulfill his word. For Christians... The old age question, or the age old question, did God really say, whispered into Eve's ears, is likewise being smoothly and seductively spoken into the ears, into our ears, especially in relation to same sex marriage? Now, I understand, brothers and sisters, that in this congregation this morning there will be those who are rainbow people. But there will be those who will not be. And I'm not here to make any judgment of where you might stand in all this. My task is to be a faithful servant of the word of God and to bring God's word. Nothing more, nothing less. Not going to add to it, at least I hope I don't. Because, uh-huh, according to the word of God, those who teach, yeah, you know the verse. So my task is not to judge where or what place you stand in all of this, but rather to bring the word of God and let the spirit of God speak into your heart and into your mind. Because what is it Paul's saying? Maybe that through um, uh, deception by the ser serpent's cunning, your minds, your minds may somehow be led astray. <clears throat> That's where the battlefield is, amen? That's where it is. It's up there. And so we begin to understand even more so when commentators, social commentators, the panel, the, the project, um, news reporters, um, current affairs, um, the ABC, <laughs> you know, everyone has an opinion. 
And so we need to be careful how we process everything we're hearing. And so, um, the age-old question, did God really say, whispered into Eve's ears, is so much so being seductively and smoothly whispered into our ears as well. And if Paul was afraid, (laughs) if Paul was afraid, church, who are we to shrug our shoulders as if we, we need to be afraid? Because the devil is cunning. He's a deceiver. And he's out to get you and me. And in so doing, to drag down the name and person of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will never happen. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the Lord. And so, why, looking at Paul who is afraid, why should we not be afraid? Or why should we be also afraid? Well, because if we're not grounded in God's word, not knowledgeable to what decrees and commands he, he decrees and demands, then I believe that we put ourselves in the same position as Eve who was deceived by Satan and we may find ourselves ignorantly endorsing the exact opposite to what God's word says and what his will is. Each day, Christians, that's you and I, are being bombarded through the media with the opinions, ideas and views and beliefs of others on an ever-increasing list of social issues. And it's a growing list. (laughs) In fact, when I was preparing this, I, I went to Mr. Google and I Googled what are the biggest social issues facing Australians, should do it. Makes great reading, terrifying reading. Here's some of them. Euthanasia, currently debating in South Australia. Voluntary euthanasia. Evolution. Religion in school. Refugees and detention. Safe School Coalition, which promotes the acceptance of same-sex attracted, intersex and gender diverse students. Abortion. LGBT, oh my goodness, sounds like the number plate to my car. <laughs> God, truly. My vocabulary seems to be growing in different ways. LGBT adoption is the adoption of children by lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender persons. And the one which is currently taking centre stage, same-sex marriage. So my question to you and to myself is this, to what extent, 
to what extent are people's opinions the primary authority in determining morality and how society should function? Let me just say that again. To what extent are people's opinions... Now, we're Christians, so we're taking it from a Christian perspective here. To what extent are people's opinions the primary authority in determining morality and how society should function? What if their viewpoints and plans disagree with the clear teachings of God revealed in the Bible? What if? What will be your stand and my stand, our position, individually and corporately? And as Christians, the primary authority in understanding what our position is and what our response should be in regard to God's will in love, in marriage, in sex, in a whole range of different things is found nowhere else but in his word. In his word. And before continuing to explore God's design for sexual intimacy, I want to say that if you feel that at some point, at some point, you may have fallen short of God's plan for your life when it comes to sexual intimacy, then there's good news. I know that when I heard that news, I felt forgiven and was forgiven and knew God's grace and mercy. The good news is, isn't it, that through Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can begin again and have a fresh start. God wants us to experience the gift, and it was a gift of his, of sexual intimacy, the way it was intended to be. So, how was it intended to be? Wow, you said, Graham, you've spent so long on your introduction. I really felt that I needed to do that. I really believe we need to get back to the Word of God when it comes to all these social issues. And so, we need to begin with the basic premise of the Bible regarding sex. Hallelujah, God, at sex was God's idea. Okay, God designed us to be male and female, intended our differences to bring us pleasure and gave us our biological and emotional drives. Oh, you know, I could say some things now that might embarrass you and they probably would embarrass my wife, so perhaps I shouldn't say them. David prayed 
God put a shield over my mouth. <laughs> Perhaps I should do that. I, I just wanted to say, you know, God, it, it, sex was God's idea. Father, what a great idea. <laughs> and I won't go any further than that. In Genesis 1, God looked at all creation, human beings as well, and, and, and saw it was very good. It, it couldn't be bettered. He didn't go, oh, hang on for a second, I, I, I perhaps made a bit of a mistake over here in connection with man and woman. No. He created man and from man created woman and he went, wow, this is very, very good. This is good. In the Song of Solomon, how many of us... Uh, have read the Songs of Solomon this year? Oh, oh, way. Okay, just a few. It's one of those books we really don't open all that much. But the Song of Solomon gives us a beautiful and graphic picture of sensual love between a man and a woman. It's a wedding song composed by Solomon honouring marriage and the most explicit statements on sex in the Bible can be found in Song of Solomon. God, as I've already said, created sex and intimacy and they are holy and good when enjoyed within the bounds of marriage. Now in the Songs of Solomon we see the purity the sacredness of sex, which stands out in stark contrast with the distorted attitudes about love and marriage in our society. Now, early in Genesis, we find God's design for intimacy. And we will go back where it says this, down the bottom. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening. Then the Lord God fashioned, made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from me. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the text begins, or I should say, the text describing the original marriage is the basis for most everything else the Bible has to say about marriage. The text teaches that God designed marriage to meet our needs for companionship 
and to provide an illustration of our relationship with him. Now, I could talk about, well, you know, one of the designs for marriage is, uh, is for children, you know, to make babies and to multiply. And that's what God said to them, you know, be fruitful and multiply. You could talk about those things. And there are many other points that we could raise and, and things that we could discuss around the whole subject of marriage and what its purpose is, um, what God's purpose for it is. But I've just chosen two because, as I said, I, I could be here forever and ever, amen, and right now you're probably all saying, I wish you'd shut up and <laughs> so we could go to morning tea. <laughs> However, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, the words of chapter 2 and 18 seem to stand out from the rest. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. And throughout chapter 1, we read of God declaring that everything he had created was good. You know, the first day we finished, it was good. God saw it and it was good. Second day, God saw it was good. And so it was. So everything is good. However, this is the first time God says that something he's created is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. It wasn't good. God saw that. And Adam saw that. Adam looked around at all the animals and, and they were all, you know, uh, paired up. And so he's looking around, looking for someone, and, and, and he goes, there's no one. And that's why he kind of said, alas, this one, this one, <laughs> this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's just like me. Well, not quite, but you know what I mean. So it's, it's a little perplexing when you think about it. Here's sinless Adam in perfect fellowship with God in a perfect environment. Can't get any better. What more could you want? Isn't and wouldn't that be enough? Well, not according to God. It wasn't enough. God takes on, uh, or I should say God's take on um, Adam needed a, a human companion, someone who in every way would be a perfect match. To say that God designed marriage to meet human need for companionship is to affirm a couple of things. One is that that means that uh, he knows how best marriage should operate. And since God designed marriage, it takes three to make a good marriage. God, man, and the woman. Right? And a woman. You know, when I marry couples, and I haven't married couples since I retired, but I used to love weddings. Just thought they were really great. I could tell you some funny stories about weddings. I remember one bride who was two hours late. And when she came down to the front, she said to me, Graham, i got to go. I said, oh, pardon? Everyone in the congregation gone. She said, I've got to go. I said, cross your legs. She said, no, I can't. Her name was Julia. So I said, okay, Julia. 
So around came the maid of honour, picked up the trainer. And off she went. And everyone in the congregation, including the groom's going. <laughs> they're wondering, they're thinking, she's doing a bolt. So I have to say, it's all right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> she's just gone to powder her nose. <laughs> She'll be back shortly. Oh, I could tell you. Anyway. <laughs> but when I marry couples, I, I try to... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I use Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10. And you know this verse. Uh, who had this read at their wedding? Two is better than one. A cord of three. Who had that read at their wedding? Yeah, of course you did. Everyone did. What, what, what were you guys thinking who didn't have it? For good, what did you have? 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah? Who are, yeah, look at that. Boring. No. So I usually take uh, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10, which talks about the strength of a cord when it's made up of three separate cords. And the cords in my uh, analogy uh, are God, the groom and the bride. And the tighter the cords are bound together, the closer each partner is to God. Uh, and the closer they are to each other. Oh, you, all you married couples are going, hey, man, Graham, preach it, preach it. Listen, my wife, listen, my husband, right? All right, get a bit more spiritual. Oh, I'm looking at all the women. Come on, guys, step up to the plate. Is that what you want, uh, girls, is that what you wanted me to say? Oh, you're not even nodding your heads, are you? Oh, you're Okay. <laughs> so, um, if they unravel and move away from God, then the further it seems, they move away from each other. And I know that personally. Because that's happened in my relationship with Robin. When God began to move, uh, when I began to move away from God, I found myself moving away from my wife. The intimacy um, seemed to be lost. Please understand, I'm not trying to be crude here. The act of sex was still there, but the intimacy was starting to get lost. But when I found that God became more and more to me than the intimacy returned, and all the women said, <laughs> Amen. Amen. As soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they experienced alienation from one another. It's sad. This is sad, guys. They experienced alienation from one another and, be, and Adam began to blame Eve for his problems. Okay. I'm almost there, guys. Moses' description of the creation of Eve is a bit surprising when you stop to think about it. It says that God 
fashioned a woman from uh, Adam's rib. Fashioned really means he built. Literally, he built. The verb pictures God as a sculptor, carefully and deliberately shaping the woman into a creature who would meet Adam's needs. Since she was built by God, you could safely say that she was well built. (laughs) If you know what I mean. (laughs) She was a real stunner. She was a real stunner. And in verse 22, it indicates that Adam didn't wake up and find Eve lying beside him. Rather, we see that God brought Eve to him. And picture Adam waking up and wondering what the funny feeling in his side was. He's counting his ribs when he hears God say, Adam, you forgot to name one of the creatures. Adam looks up and he sees Eve and the word says, although they were both naked, they felt no shame. And Adam said, Hama, Hama, ding, ding. <laughs> when he saw her. We know she was a knockout because of that response. Now, listen to the very first words ever recorded by the very first man. They were not quite as measured as some of the translations or as you read them in the Bible might indicate. A more literal rendering of the original Hebrew is, all right. (laughs) Now, these are uh, emphatic words, exclamations, right? He didn't just look at her and go, "Eh, that'll do. He goes like this, all right, this is the Hebrew, all right. Or, wow, this is now. <laughs> or, God, now you know I'm to- what I'm talking about. That <laughs> no, doesn't say that. Uh, he just says, here, now, this one, now, at last. He, I mean, this guy's jumping out of his skin. Or, this is the very thing that hits the mark. Oh, man, alive. Hey, guys, uh, married people this morning, isn't that the way we first looked at one another and when we fell in love, it was, man, you hit the mark. Absolutely. And so this is his response as well. Remember that Adam had been looking through all the animals for one corresponding to him and has come up empty. And when God brings Eve to him, he just said, yes! (laughs) Now you got it. God's design uh, for marriage also is to provide an illustration of our relationship with him. The word says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul goes on to say, this is in Ephesians, he's actually quoting this verse out of Genesis, just like Jesus did. Uh, This is a profound mystery. What I'm talking about is 
Christ and the church. The Bible says that God created marriage for, the, for a purpose much bigger than itself. Marriage is a picture of the believer's relationship with God. Hold in tension then this whole argument of same-sex marriage. That is not God's picture. That is not God's picture. I don't know who's painting that one. Popular opinion? Social comment? The squeaky wheel getting all the oil? But that's not God's picture. God, uh, church, that is not our picture. God says that um, after discussing, the word of God says after discussing marriage, Paul, uh, after discussing um, Genesis 2 and 24, Paul writes, this mystery is profound. But I'm not talking about Christ, but I am, I should say, talking about Christ and the church. So marriage is an earthly picture of a spiritual relationship that exists between Christ who is our bridegroom and the church you and I his bride the consummation of a marriage is referred to in the Bible as a man knowing his wife even so we can know Christ our bridegroom a husband and a wife are one flesh and Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 17 that whoever is united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Whoever is united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Now just as the church is to be subject to Christ, so a wife is to be subject to a husband. Just as Christ loves the church, so a husband is to love his wife. Just as the marital union results in children, so the union of the Lord and the church is to result in many offspring to God's glory. Let me conclude now um, by quoting an article written by Focus on the Family of God's design for intimacy. It goes on to say this, it says this, As with the temptation of mankind in the Garden of Eden, the enemy casts doubt, uh, doubt on God's clearly articulated order by acknowledging a well-known truth and then supplementing it with a blatant lie. In this case, the truth about two sexes, male, uh, is exchanged with the lie that male and female are unimportant, interchangeable and even fluid for some individuals. In his epistle, first epistle, John wrote, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 
and test the spirits up against the word of God. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Psalm 119 says that the entrance of your word, the entrance of your word gives revelation, gives light. I pray, Father, that we will be those who will love your word, that will read your word, that will stand on your word. And that we will not be silent. That we will seek in love, with grace, to speak the truth. Father, I pray that in all of the issues that confront us in this age, we will put them through the filter of your word and that we will know what you have to say about them. We pray this and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for your patience, church. I really appreciate that.